Hey, welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. And we talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. We do. That, <sighs> is, that is the truth. And it is 2023. This is our first time recording Yeah. in the new year. It is. Mm-hmm. It's true. Mm-hmm. We had a New Year's episode come out, but we recorded it before. Yeah, it's true. And wow, look at us go. How fun. Yeah. This has been a really, I feel like a, a really, I guess, eventful week for the podcast. There's just been a lot of little milestones in the last yeah, week, which has been has cool. Been. I'm really excited about that. It yeah. feels appropriate too, being like the turn of the year and all of that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Oh, that's really neat. Well, we always need to begin with the most important question of the day. What are you drinking? I am drinking a little vanilla chai tea latte. Ooh, nice okay. and toasty for this mm-hmm. cold, cold Nebraska winter night. <laughs> yeah. What about you? <laughs> it is very chilly. Um, I decided to go a little bit, a little bit. I really wanted a hot toddy, but we didn't have everything for that. So yeah. I went for a little bit of a adaptation of sorts, which is really not that close. <laughs> but <laughs> um, went for a vanilla Camaro flavored uh, decaf tea. Okay. Plus Jim Beam. I can smell that you put some whiskey in mm-hmm. your whiskey. Mm-hmm. Put some whiskey in my whiskey. Put some heartbreak in your heart. That's right. And then also added a little bit of simple syrup to it. Helps yeah. sweeten it a little. And uh, some honey. So yeah, that's what I'm drinking tonight. Something to warm me up a little bit. Do you <laughs> like it? Yeah, it's okay, good. Okay. I, I I can smell it from here. I definitely put more whiskey in than <laughs> yeah. I realized I did. <laughs> I can tell. Yeah. That's funny. So, yeah. That's uh, it's what I'm drinking tonight. Nice. Well, do you have a good feeling fact for us? I do have a feel-good fact. So... That's the, the, the good feeling fact is the knockoff version, the Walmart brand. Uh, no, I think it's good value. Good value. Or great yeah. value. It's great, yeah, great value. value. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, it's the not great, just good. <laughs> the great value brand is a, a good feeling fact. But do you have a true feel-good okay. fact for us? <laughs> <laughs> so a Brazilian man is responsible for planting every single tree in an entire forest. What? Sebastio Salgado founded Instituto Terra in 1998 upon discovering that a forest in his hometown had dwindled down to almost no plant life. He hmm. planted over 2 million seedlings. The forest is now 1,500 acres and is home to 293 species of plants 172 species of birds, 15 species of reptiles, 15 species of amphibians, and 33 species of mammals who were not there before due to the previous state of the forest. So this guy literally like changed the world (laughs) and created a whole ecosystem by himself. Wow. That's really neat. Yes. I apologize if I mispronounced his name, but I thought he was awesome. Why do you got to do this to me? Sebastio Salgado. Sebastio Salgado. Well, Sebastio, thank you so much for being a hero. Yes. The hero we didn't know we needed, honestly. Yeah. He saved the world. <laughs> Think about all the oxygen that he created. Yeah. Good job. Good job, Sebastio. You did it. Making us feel good. Well, my dear, now that you've told us all about Sebastio and his incredible feats, why don't you go ahead and bring us down with uh, another human who maybe, maybe did the opposite. <laughs> he definitely did the opposite. So... Weirdly, this guy is is someone who I've heard 
talked about, but I feel like given what we do know about his crimes, it's kind of shocking to me that he's not one of the serial Mm. killers that is on the top of the list of like the ones that people talk to death about like Dahmer and Bundy and those guys. So my disclaimer from the outset, this is going to be a two part uh, series because I wanted to kind of spend a little time focusing on different things in the two episodes and kind of tie it all together in part two. Mm -hmm. Uh, But my disclaimer is that from beginning to end, especially in part two, it's just going to be a really upsetting story. Oh, okay. The details of what happened to the victims are sad and brutal. So this is your blanket content warning for the next two episodes. And I will still offer last second trigger warnings like I usually do. But okay, good. Hang yeah. on, Kev. This one's a doozy. All right. I'll do my best. Okay. So we're going to start by traveling to Anchorage, Alaska. Alaska, Anchorage in particular, is a very unique and unforgiving place. In the summer, it's the brightest place in the world with 22 straight hours of bright sunshine. Wow. It brings in a hefty amount of tourists, many of which are outdoor enthusiasts who love to take advantage of like extended daytime and, you know, go do some extra outdoor activities. But when winter descends, this bright place is plunged into freezing cold darkness. For nearly six straight months, it's completely dark. Temperatures drop to well below zero in the winters, and during this time of the year, it's not for the faint of heart. Wow. In his 1988 novel, Alaska by James Mishner, uh, he wrote, quote, Alaska must be viewed as having two characteristics, great beauty, but also implacable hostility, Hmm. end quote. Those who survive and thrive in such a place would, quote, would always be somewhat a special breed. Adventurous, heroic, willing to contest the great winds, the endless nights, the freezing winters, end quote. <laughs> yeah. It's like yeah. a crazy place. So yeah. Anchorage itself sits next to the Cook Inlet, which is a body of water that stretches for over 180 miles of Alaska shoreline. It's also nestled near uh, the Chugach Mountains. Mm-hmm. Sure, I butchered that. Anchorage is made up of over 300,000 residents and houses 40% of Alaska's total population. Along with the human population, it's not out of the question for bears or moose to make their way into town and walk along the roadway or across the yard. It really just illustrating that this is a wild place. Yeah. So on February 2nd, 2012, a barista had arrived to begin her shift at the Common Grounds coffee kiosk. In Anchorage, these coffee kiosks are like where it's at. They're Mm. these small little shack type structures that are drive through only. So anyone looking for their coffee fix pulls up and gets their drink without needing to leave their car and brave the cold nice. Alaska yes. air. <laughs> Just stay in your car. Yeah. And these kiosks are everywhere. The common ground stood out because it was painted a bright turquoise color and was situated just off of a busy four lane road. And it was kind of like stood out like a sore thumb in a good way. Mm-hmm. Cause it's just like gray everywhere. Sure. And then there's this yeah. like happy looking little shack. <laughs> yeah. So on this particular morning, the barista who came in was immediately concerned. The barista who was responsible for closing the kiosk after her shift the night before, 18-year-old Samantha Koenig, was known for always doing a great job and always closing up responsibly, despite only working there for about a month at this point. Oh, wow. On this particular morning, though, the kiosk was a mess. There were napkins everywhere, and money from the previous day was missing. This sent alarm bells ringing, and so on February 2nd, Samantha Koenig was reported missing. Yeah. So let's talk about Samantha for a minute. Samantha Koenig was a high school senior who loved all things outdoors. 
She loves shooting guns and riding ATVs, going fishing and camping and all that kind of stuff. She was also creative and found a lot of joy in writing music and poetry. She also loved playing Call of Duty with her boyfriend. (laughs) The previous year, Samantha had suffered from a pretty severe addiction to cocaine, but had made great strides in working through and recovering from her addiction. She loved animals and had dreams of working with them for her future profession. She loved the idea of either working with horses or with wild animals. Wow. She worked hard in school and was remembered by peers and friends as always being a bright spot in people's lives. She had a knack for noticing someone eating alone at lunch or sitting by themselves at a school event, and she would always go sit with them or invite them to join her and her friends. She was like a bridge builder in that way. She got along with everybody. She was super smart, quick-witted, funny, and very kind. Hmm. So that's a little background on Samantha. So once investigators at the Anchorage Police Department were informed that Samantha had gone missing, the hunt was on to figure out what had happened to her, starting first with looking into her home life. Hmm. They learned that Samantha lived with her single father, James Koenig. She had siblings, but I'm not sure what the living situation was with them. Okay. She also had a boyfriend named Dwayne, who she had been dating for about a year. So once APD had arrived at the kiosk to take a look around, the scene did not give them any clues like at all. The two most important investigators on the case are Detective Jeff Bell and the lead investigator assigned to this case, Monique or Mickey Dahl. Dahl was a young officer who had spent time working undercover with the DEA, and this was her first case that she was given the lead on, Hmm. which is exciting. Yeah. One of her first moves was to contact the FBI field office in Anchorage, which was pretty common practice. Even though Anchorage is a pretty big city, the inner workings were very much like a small town, at least in the realm of law enforcement. Hmm. When one department knows something, all of the different institutions would also know soon as well. So FBI Special Agent Steve Payne was one of the first FBI agents who was informed of Samantha's suspicious disappearance. On his team that would eventually work on this case were Kat Nelson, a young tech whiz who was like a master at sifting through anything digital. And she could formulate a timeline and a narrative based off of her digital findings, like in her sleep. She was awesome. Yeah. And then Jolene Godin, who is the exact kind of person that you want on a case of a missing girl. Godin was tough. She'd spent years working with criminals of all kinds and had worked cases that freed victims of human trafficking children who had been victims, and the list goes on. Hmm. She credits her faith for being able to be in the room with the worst of the worst and still being able to treat them like humans, which would result Hmm. in them opening up to her, and that would help her solve crimes. Wow! So this was not a ragtag group. This was a group that, for the most part, was pretty well suited for a case like this one. With limited evidence, it was pretty much a guessing game in those initial hours and days. Lots of theories arose as they went to rule out the people closest to Samantha. Some officers believe that given the fact that Samantha was alone on the night that she disappeared, that maybe she just up and left. This theory relied heavily on the fact that they learned that she was in a pretty nasty argument with her boyfriend via text the night before. So maybe she just got mad and took off after Mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. That theory did crumble pretty quickly, though. At this point, Samantha didn't have her own vehicle, but shared one with Dwayne, who was supposed to pick her up from her shift at 8.30 p.m. the night before. He had shown up to pick her up from her job a little bit after 8.30 because he'd gotten off like a few minutes late from his job. Sure. Uh, But Samantha wasn't there. So he just thought, well, she must have gotten another ride from someone else since I was late, you know, whatever. Mm. And so he just drove home. 
And overall, the idea that she had wandered off when there were five-foot snowdrifts covering the coffee kiosk in an area of the city that was far from walkable in the freezing cold with maybe $200 that she'd stolen from her place of employment didn't make sense. Yeah. So I didn't get too much into this when I was putting this together, but a lot of the different things that I watched and listened to and read for this story all talked a lot about the initial focus being that she was not necessarily relapsing, but she was sort of being written off as like a young rebellious runaway. Yeah. Like some investigators were not taking her disappearance super seriously at first. I feel like the names that I did mention were all like immediately like, that doesn't make any sense. And we can't treat it like that's what it is, you know? Hmm. But I don't know, something about that it's like leaves a little bit of a yucky taste. I know there are thousands and thousands of people that go missing every day. And I'm sure that there is a pattern that law enforcement would be familiar mm-hmm. with, but it was a bummer because time was wasted. I feel like in exploring yeah. that or just not even really exploring that theory, just deciding that that is what happened and then moving on. Yeah. I kind of, I was getting the feeling that there was maybe something that was going to be unfortunate with that. They would just mm-hmm. kind of write her off and, it also says a lot about what what addiction maybe uh, can do to your reputation. That, like like you said, she had just had that job, or just started that job recently, mm-hmm. um, and had a good reputation. And yet, all it took was someone suggesting that for people to begin considering just writing her off. As I feel a, like it's an unfortunate extra, like side effect of addiction. And like an un, an unfortunate mm-hmm. stigma that, you know, I, I know I don't want to get too far down that road either, but I feel like that's a sad thing where mm-hmm. somebody who, and we'll actually see that a little bit in the second part of this, where somebody who is down on their luck or has struggled with substance abuse or addiction or anything like that isn't always prioritized as important yeah. to find. And she'd been clean for a while. Like she'd been really working hard. She could have dropped out of school if she wanted to. Mm -hmm. She could have stopped moving forward, but she was working really, really hard. And it makes me sad that some of the investigators were just like, meh, it's just another addict. Like, as if that doesn't matter. Right. Like Mm -hmm. that person matters less. So anyway, I don't want to like grandstand or anything, but that was something that I wanted to make sure I at least touched on for a minute. Well, and it's important for, I would imagine, the rest of the story that people uh, know just because you might have that in your history, recent or not, uh, that doesn't automatically mean that you are a criminal. Right. That, yeah. Like, it's just, anyway, yeah. It's like I can weird see where victim, we're going with this. Yeah. weird victim blaming. Yeah. So, next, they did need to dig into her private life to see if there were any more plausible leads. Special Agent mm-hmm. Payne made his way over to APD to talk with them because he was worried that Samantha's case wasn't being taken as seriously as he feared that it needed to be. So given, I actually did talk about this. Sorry, I forgot. So given her history with drug addiction, he was worried that she was being written off as a lost cause or a troubled youth who had chosen to commit some petty crime before running away. Mm -hmm. To Payne, he had a sinking suspicion that there was something more sinister at play. When he arrived, his suspicions were confirmed. APD had received surveillance from the evening of February 1st. On the surveillance is Samantha, who's cleaning up inside of the very tiny kiosk as she's preparing to close Hmm. around 8 PM, which is the time that it closes. Someone walked up to the kiosk window and knocked. You couldn't quite see 
who it was sure. just because the camera doesn't focus outside, but yeah. there was a customer. So Samantha opened the window and the man ordered an Americano. So Samantha then turned around and began making the man his coffee. Two minutes and six seconds into the video, Samantha turned back around to collect the payment from the customer and hand him his order. And that's when she suddenly freezes and then turns off the lights. You can see mm. Samantha putting her hands up in the air as whoever is outside of the kiosk is pointing what looks to be a gun at her. Yeah. She slowly walked over to the counter and got down on her knees where she stayed for about a minute. She then stood up, walked over to the counter and pulled out all of the money from the register, which she then handed over to the man. Mm. She calmly went back down on her knees. So the tricky part is that there's no audio on the right. surveillance, so they can't be sure exactly what the conversation was. But she was, like, really calm. She was not freaking out. Hmm. She was very calm. So she stood back up. She walked towards the window and then turned her back to it. About five minutes into the whole ordeal, the man, in one smooth leap, jumped into the kiosk window so he was inside of this tiny space with her. It's hard to tell exactly what's happening because it's a little bit grainy. Mm -hmm. But it looks as if he's tying her hands behind her back. Two more minutes passed, and that's when he closes the window and the two appeared to be having a conversation. Still very calm. Mm -hmm. He then forced Samantha outside of the kiosk with his arm wrapped around her before the two set off into the freshly snowy night. So what actually happened here? It was obviously an abduction and robbery, but the whole thing didn't seem that cut and dry based off of the video that the investigators had just seen. So, and this is... I'm not going to encourage people to go look at it, um, mm -hmm. but it is available on okay. the internet. You can see the surveillance and it is really confusing because it's a scary situation. You can tell it's scary, mm -hmm. but Samantha just was so calm. She was like so composed. I would have lost my marbles. <laughs> she was like, I think that survival mode kicked in mm -hmm. for her and she was thinking really well on her feet and was not panicking. Yeah. So it was time to get in contact with the family of Samantha. By February 3rd, two whole days after she'd gone missing, Samantha's father, James, was desperate for more answers. So James was a rough and tumble kind of guy. He was a trucker by profession, and there were rumors that he may have been involved with some level of the drug trade, hmm. but there really wasn't, from what I could find, much proof of that rumor. So... I mean, rumors are rumors, I sure. suppose. Yeah. Despite all of that, though, James was absolutely smitten by Samantha. He loved her. Hmm. And so the fact that she was missing made it feel like the world was over right. for James. Yeah. The night that she went missing, she'd actually texted her dad and asked him to bring her dinner at the kiosk, but he didn't see the message. And so he didn't bring her food. Oh, dang. When he was being interviewed by police, he kept reiterating that he should have brought her dinner. Like he's placing blame on himself mm -hmm. oh. for what happened, which is really sad, is really sad. and really unfair. You yeah. see that so much in stories like this where like the people closest to a victim of a crime feel just completely unwarranted guilt. Mm -hmm. Like you did, you couldn't have done anything differently. Right. Like, hmm. and there's no way you could have known, you know? So investigators got some basic information from James and then sent him on his way for the moment. From that point on, James mobilized himself to rally the entire city of Anchorage to know Samantha's face and name in hopes of finding her and bringing her home safely. Wow. He made mountains of flyers with her picture and name with the bright red letters reading kidnapped on the top of the flyers. And he would hand stacks of them out to anybody who would help him spread the word. Wow. 
But these efforts, though they were effective at spreading the word about Samantha's disappearance, were somehow not enough to keep James Koenig off of the radar of police. Uh-huh. There was another person that they needed to follow up with, though, and that was Samantha's boyfriend, Dwayne. Sure. Dwayne gave Detective Dahl his best recollection of the night that Samantha went missing. He told her that he went to pick her up, but she wasn't there when he got there. Then he pulled up his text messages, and unfortunately, it became obvious right away that the young couple was having problems. Mm -hmm. First off, they'd been fighting on the day that she went missing. So Dwayne had been caught sending flirty texts to other girls, and Samantha was not happy about it. Oh, Dwayne, no. And then at 11.30 p.m. on February 1st, Samantha had texted him, F you, a-hole. I know what you did, and I'm going to spend a couple of days with friends. Need time to think, plan, acting weird, let my dad know. End quote. Hmm. So this got Doll's wheels turning. Who was acting weird? What did Dwayne do? Was that Dwayne on the surveillance video? Samantha had seemed extremely calm for the entire 17-minute surveillance video, so maybe she did know her abductor, and maybe it was Dwayne. He insisted that he did not do this and that he had no idea where Samantha was. He said that he'd gone over to James and Samantha's house and went to bed. I'm pretty sure that Dwayne lived with them, but I'm not positive. Sure. Okay. Around 3 a.m., roughly seven hours since Samantha had gone missing, Dwayne heard a noise outside and went to go check it out. When he opened the front door, he saw a man breaking into his vehicle. The man stood there and stared at Dwayne for a minute before flashing a large knife. So Dwayne yelled at him, like, get out of here, and Mm. then ran inside. I think the knife scared him. And he also told James that there was a guy outside. So when the two went back outside a few minutes later, they discovered the man was gone and that he'd stolen Samantha's ID and ATM card that Dwayne and Samantha shared. Hmm. So she didn't have her own card, but she did have like a joint thing with him. Sure. Okay. There wasn't much that they could do at that point. So they went to bed. This felt weird to doll. Like, okay, why didn't either of you mention these details before? Mm -hmm. But that was really it for the time being. That is really strange. I, my gut would say, especially if my girlfriend hadn't shown up granted. Okay. But they'd gotten texts from her. They'd gotten texts from her. Yeah. Saying that she was going to be gone. So Dwayne is just kind of like, I guess I'll just go back to home. What if that's where he lives, whatever. Mm-hmm. And just go to bed and she'll turn up in a day or two when mm-hmm. she has thought through stuff, whatever. I'll call her tomorrow. Yeah. And, and then some guy just breaks into the car and takes just her things. Right. Yeah. That would be, hmm. Okay. That's weird, but okay. But it's also one of those things where, so they kept the, her ID Mm -hmm. and the debit card that they shared in like the visor. Oh, so it was a little bit. Okay. So it's possible that whoever this was just grabbed felt cards, pulled them out. Yeah. And just Mm. didn't realize one of them was the ID. And when you're in a situation like this, you don't really know that anything is a clue unless it's later turned into an investigation. You know what I mean? Like he wasn't thinking my girlfriend was kidnapped seven hours ago. Mm -hmm. I should remember this. Like it is pretty significant to have somebody break into your car, but I could also see how it doesn't necessarily correlate in your mind either. Sure. And this thought came to my mind earlier, the whole thing about, about Samantha being an addict or a former addict also 
creates the opportunity for her to be a target to mm-hmm. not just that she's yep. um, a potential suspect or whatever, but like that she is a target because of people that she would have had relationships with, mm-hmm. interactions with, history with, whatever. That was talked about for a minute sure. with James when oh, they were okay. like, I I wonder, there were some pretty wild mm. rumors. I'm sure. That went around about James, but some of it was she was taking the blame for, or she was taking the fall for mistakes that he made because he owed someone money. And so she was being taken. You know what I mean? It was like that kind of thing. Yeah. Hmm. Lots of weirdo rumors like that. Yeah. Very shortly after Samantha's disappearance, the whole city of Anchorage was completely committed to finding her and bringing her home. Wow. A reward fund had been established for anyone who would bring her home safely. And the numbers in that reward pot were steadily moving upward with each passing moment. Candlelight vigils were held and flyers were still being passed around and were hanging on businesses all over the area. Hmm. James had set up a tip line and had organized volunteer search efforts that met right in front of the Common Grounds kiosk. Oh, wow. Straight up at this point in the investigation, James was doing more than APD had been able to do. (laughs) Up until this point. Wow. Meanwhile, yeah. FBI had reached out to airlines, cruises, boats, and vehicle rental businesses to see if Samantha had, in fact, run away on her own volition. So at least they're like attempting to rule it mm-hmm. out and they're not just saying, well, that's what it is and moving on with their day. Yeah. They also looked at businesses that tend to make fast hires in case maybe she had gotten a job somewhere and was laying low. Mm-hmm. All of this turned up nothing. And the media was going absolutely bonkers with this story all the while. About two weeks into the investigation, with no leads and a $60,000 reward in place. That's a lot of money. Yeah. After two weeks. Hmm. So law enforcement still had nothing. Mm -hmm. People were beginning to talk. Rumors and false information were flying. I bet James killed her for the reward money. Did you hear they found Samantha's body? And that sort of stuff, which Mm. obviously did not help things because they were not true. Sure, sure. There was no movement until February 24th at 7.56 p.m. when Duane received a text from Samantha that read, Connor Park sign under pick of Albert. Ain't she purdy? Ooh. Duane told James and police immediately, and they and APD arrived at Connor's Bog Park, which was a popular trailhead. On the bulletin board, underneath a flyer looking for a missing dog named Albert was a Ziploc bag. In the bag was a typed ransom note and a photo of Samantha. Oh my God. She was looking worse for wear, but she was alive, bound, and duct taped. Her hair was in a braid, and a man's hand was holding her head towards the camera. In the corner was a picture of the Anchorage Daily newspaper dated February 13th. In the ransom note, the kidnapper informed them that Samantha was alive, but she'd almost gotten away twice, and that they were now in the lower 48. He demanded $30,000 to be transferred to Samantha's bank account attached to the debit card that had been stolen. If his demand was met, Samantha would be released in six months. Oh. Six months. Oh, man. What would you even do reading that as a dad, as a parent? I have no idea. That's, there's, I mean... I've seen way too many episodes of Criminal Minds. Yeah. That does blur things a little bit. <laughs> it does. And so it makes my brain just like, well, you can't just give them money because then they'll just start, they'll just keep gutting you, you know? Mm-hmm. And the sixth month promise, that's a really long time. That's a really long time. I mean, even, it, just, it sets up all kinds of like, 
I don't even know what I would do. Yeah. Because to even say, send me money and I'll release her immediately, at least makes you consider it, you know? Right. But like, send Six me- Six months. Yeah. Oh, that's so, okay. That'd be very hard. Yeah. So hmm. much like- you know, the different FBI and APD investigators had said this was shaping up to be a kidnapping case after all. Mm-hmm. Though, unfortunately, some people still had suspicions about James because according to a few witnesses during this whole ordeal, he'd become obsessed with tracking the reward money, which I'm not sure how that's an indictment, but mm-hmm. I get why they had to keep him on their radar until more evidence became available. Sure. When they tested the ransom note and the photo for DNA, there were no results. Whoever did this knew how to cover their tracks. Mm -hmm. Shortly after getting the note, James Koenig and law enforcement were in agreement that they definitely needed to send reward money. Mm. The idea was that they would transfer money to the account, hoping that the card would stay active and then wait for the card to be used. Then maybe they could actually track this guy's movements. So Mm. they started with depositing $5,000 in hopes of making the kidnapper angry enough to make contact with them again to like demand the rest of the ransom request. And then maybe that would be another way they could track him. Sure. So they're trying different things. So four hours after the $5,000 was deposited, shockingly, the card was used at an ATM in Anchorage. Whoever it was had tried to withdraw more than the daily limit though. Within an hour, the card was used again at the ATM at Denali Federal Credit Union. But this time it went through because they'd withdrawn the correct amount. Ah, Within 30 minutes, shortly after midnight, the card was used at an ATM across Anchorage. So the ransom note and the ransom money was not public knowledge at this point. Okay. The only people who knew about the agreement outside of law enforcement were Dwayne and James. Yeah. So James was now the main suspect in his daughter's disappearance once again. Mm. It took several days to get surveillance videos from the respective ATMs where the card was used. But once it came in, the man who had withdrawn the money appeared to be white athletic and he was wearing a sweatshirt with the word core on the back so he was likely a marine or had previously been a marine oh yeah he was also wearing a face mask gloves dark pants and light colored shoes Hmm. so no really super identifying features yeah one thing that had taken a painfully long time for apt to ask for was the surveillance from the many businesses surrounding the common grounds kiosk right across the street was a home depot and an IHOP and multiple other businesses. When footage came in from the Home Depot, they found something. Around 8 p.m. on February 1st, a man pulled up in a white Chevy truck. No plates, no real identifying features. Hmm. The man sat in the car for about 10 minutes before getting out, walking across the parking lot, across the street, and to the kiosk. After 20 minutes, the man was seen on the footage walking back across the street with Samantha. Oh, man. She was clearly bound at the wrists and was being led to the truck by the man. At one point, she turned and tried to run away from him, but he tackled her, whispered something to her, and then kept leading her to the truck. The whole time this is going on, by the way, there are many people walking around. So this whole kidnapping is, to some degree, being witnessed by multiple people. The sad thing about it is that unless you knew to be looking for her wrist being bound, it did look as if Samantha was just being safely taken home by her boyfriend after having too much to drink. Like, she really looked like she was stumbling, like she was Mm. drunk in the skies, just supporting her and helping her. Yeah. So Hmm. that's kind of the assumption why nobody else reacted. 
Yeah. They're like people that uh, walk past her cars driving past. Yeah. <sighs> Stresses me out so bad. So the man led her to the car, quote, helped her into the front seat, climbed into the driver's side and pulled away. So now they had to figure out who this truck belonged to. The trouble was that without a license plate and given the fact that surveillance of the truck itself was pretty grainy, this venture was really like trying to find one specific snowflake in mm-hmm. a field covered in five foot snowdrifts. Right, right. And apparently that was the most popular make and model of vehicle in Anchorage was I'm a sure. white pickup. So it's like, yeah, yeah that makes sense. What are you even going to do? How, where do we even begin? You yeah. know, progress was once again halted. But on March 7th, more than a month since Samantha had gone missing, there was a new development. Samantha's card was used at an ATM in Wilcox, Arizona. Oh, wow. So thankfully, James Koenig and Dwayne were immediately vindicated from all suspicions that they had anything to do with this. Mm-hmm. The only trouble was that now, whoever took Samantha was 4,000 miles away. Luckily, Payne was able to get in contact with the FBI field office, who went to work quickly to get surveillance from the bank in Wilcox, where the card was used. Yeah. It was a small bank, so it took a while to get the images, but once they did, they compared stills from the footage in Wilcox to other stills they'd managed to get from various Alaskan banks where the card was used. Mm -hmm. The man in all of the stills was 100% the same guy, but he was dressed in baggy clothes and had his face almost always somewhat covered. Mm. And it was unclear if the man had a passenger in any of the footage, so they weren't sure if Samantha was with him or not. Sure, yeah. They couldn't tell a make or model of the vehicle that he was driving either, but they could tell it was some sort of white sedan. They still weren't able to make an ID on the man, but they were gaining a small amount of traction. Within an hour of getting the photos, the card was used again in Lordsburg, New Mexico, about an hour away. This gave them a clue of the direction the man was headed, east on Interstate 10. But to be safe, Payne sent out a bolo alert to authorities in Los Angeles, San Diego, Phoenix, Albuquerque, and El Paso. Hmm. The bolo alert read, kidnapping suspect, Koenig, Samantha. Suspect will be an unknown male last seen wearing a light-colored hooded sweatshirt. Suspect vehicle will be newer, light-colored passenger car. Based on ATM transactions, it's believed that the suspect is traveling east towards El Paso. Attached to the bolo was a photo of Samantha and grainy photos of the man and vehicle. Hmm. As the card was being used, investigators noticed a pattern. The man was using the card and hitting banks in tiny towns, very small towns. Oh, sure. Towns that likely had a limited police force. Towns that he could get in and out of really quickly without being noticed. Mm -hmm. There was a level of strategic cunning that was starting to become apparent. Whoever this guy was, it seemed like he had planned this little excursion pretty well. Mm -hmm. Investigators were once again stuck waiting for the kidnapper to make his next move. And they had to hope beyond hope that this guy wouldn't stop using the card because that's all they have. Yeah. Yeah. The good news is that the card was used again in Humble, Texas over the weekend. The word was spread far and wide in the South and Southwestern United States. Shortly after, the rental vehicle was identified as a Ford Focus thanks to some tech wizards at the FBI. They assumed it was a rental, and so they began contacting every rental company in the region where the card was being used. Police in Texas were all aware that the suspect was most likely in their area, and so many took it upon themselves to follow any lead that they could come up with. 
and this would pay off big time when Officer Steve Rayburn, who had worked as a state trooper, a Lufkin police officer in Lufkin, Texas, and as a Texas Ranger, got the idea to send officers to drive around hotel and motel parking lots Hmm. in search of a white Ford Focus that was also a rental. When Mm. one of his officers arrived to the Quality Inn off of US 59, there was a white Ford Focus waiting right there, parked in front of room 115. An FBI agent who worked in Lufkin named Deb Ganaway had been in close contact with Rayburn since they were given the BOLO alert. And so Rayburn called her right when he learned that the car they were possibly looking for had been found. Mm -hmm. So they piled into a truck and headed over. The first thing they noticed was the barcodes on the window of the Ford Focus confirming this was, in fact, a rental. Mm -hmm. Next, they noticed little girls clothing scattered in the back seat. They had to consider the fact that the Quality Inn was located next to several other hotels. And so it was highly possible that the driver of this car could be staying at any of the hotels in the immediate area. Sure, yeah. They stationed a couple of additional officers in undercover vehicles in the vicinity of the hotels to keep watch and see if there was any suspicious activity while Rayburn and Ganaway went into the various hotels to try and figure out if they could connect the driver of the car with anyone renting any of the hundreds of rooms in question. Mm -hmm. So this was like a, like again, a needle in a haystack moment. So while they were in one of the hotel lobbies, one of the undercover officers noted that a man had come out of room 215 at Quality Inn and was loading things into the Ford Focus, obviously preparing to leave. Mm -hmm. And bam, they have their man. So the trouble is that they needed a reason to pull him over in order to follow up. Mm -hmm. So as the car pulled out of the lot, an officer by the name of Corporal Brian Henry got into his vehicle, which was an actual police car, and began to follow the Ford Focus. He trailed a few cars behind and just waited for the driver to make even the smallest mistake. Mm -hmm. When the car reached a speed of 57 miles per hour in a 55 zone, Henry flipped on his lights and proceeded to pull the car (laughs) over, prepared for the driver to make a getaway. Uh He went two miles over the speed limit. Oh, man. (laughs) Much to Henry's surprise, though, the driver calmly pulled over into a parking lot. He walked up to the car. The driver, who was traveling alone and looked to be a 30-something-year-old white man, informed him that he was from Alaska. Henry asked him why he was in town. The man told him that he was in town for his sister's wedding, 15 minutes away from where they were in Wells, Texas. Henry then Hmm. asked to see the man's driver's license. He handed over his Alaska-issued ID, and Henry took a look. When Henry ran the plates of the vehicle, there was no indication that it had been used in any recent crimes, at least. Hmm. After a short exchange between police and the driver, the driver seemed to be becoming increasingly nervous as questions poured in. The man asked, what is this whole thing about? When he was informed that police were looking into a kidnapping, the driver began to go on a rant, detailing what he was doing that week and who he was with. He offered tons of unimportant details, which is a telltale sign that he was either lying or stalling. <laughs> right. He informed the police that he was in town with his 10-year-old daughter for his sister's wedding. A little more back and forth took place, and investigators were becoming increasingly convinced that this was their man. Mm. But they still didn't have enough to arrest him. Fortunately, Texas has a probable cause exemption where if you believe that a vehicle has been used in the commission of a crime, it can be searched. Which I'm not going to be... Mm. I'm not okay. going to spend a lot of time getting into how that could be a terrible sure. exemption. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but in this case, it was a stroke of luck. Yeah. 
They had the driver exit the car while they searched the vehicle. And though he was agitated, the suspect was at least mostly cooperative. Hmm. In the car, they found wads of cash loaded with dye packs, which are commonly used by banks in case Mm -hmm. of a robbery. Mm -hmm. They found paper maps, knives, school photos of a young girl, most likely the man's daughter, and some other odds and ends. In the trunk, they found a whole mess of pornography, a bunch of clothes and things you would expect for someone traveling, a gun, binoculars, a black ski mask that appeared to match the one seen in several surveillance stills, Mm. a dismantled cell phone, and a headlamp. This was enough to arrest him, believe it or not. Wow. Once he was arrested, they were allowed to search the man's wallet, and in it, they found another driver's license. This one belonged to Samantha Koenig. Oh, man. They also found Samantha and Dwayne's debit card. So this seemed like the real deal. Ganaway called Payne up in Alaska to let him know what was happening. Quote, we got him. This is the guy. Mm. End quote. Wow. And so on March 13th, 2012 in Lufkin, Texas, the arrest was finally made in the kidnapping of Samantha Koning. The name on the man's driver's license was Israel Keys. And that is what I have for you for part one. Oh, okay. Wow. There's, there's some suspense built up here. I'm, uh. I'm curious because though this seems like a bit of a getaway story that turned out good, there's a whole second part coming up. That's like almost double the length. So, so, <laughs> so I have a feeling this is about to break wide open in a way that, uh, if you honestly, don't cry, I'm not expecting. If you don't cry, I'll be shocked. <laughs> okay. I've got you not, a couple of times. Now I'm now. not gonna, now that you said it. No, so you'll cry. You jinxed it. I know you will. <laughs> I know you too well. But yeah, so they've arrested somebody in Mm -hmm. connection with the kidnapping. Mm -hmm. He's, I mean, that's a pretty smoking gun to have the two most relevant things being her missing ID and her missing debit card that's been used that same day, you know, in the area. Yeah. You know, so. Well, yeah. Also, there's a handful of those things that you listed that were in his car that are not normal things to have when you're just like road tripping. Mm-hmm. Like why, why would you have a bunch of pornography? Why would you have, uh, all these knives and a gun like, and a headlamp? Also, if he's traveling, I don't, I don't know exactly how the federal laws work with that, but if you're traveling across state lines with a gun, uh, you're might be suspect. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure what the federal yeah. rules are with that either. Yeah. I guess I didn't think about that. At the very least, you're somebody who should probably be looked into a little bit. If you don't have like appropriate licensing <laughs> yeah, and stuff. Yeah. Cause I know like, like our brother-in-law will go hunting in different States mm-hmm. and obviously he needs to bring right. guns for that. Right. But you I have to literally know yeah. nothing about this though. Mm-hmm. So don't ask me cause I do not know. Yeah. I'm very curious about how all that's going to pan out and just the sorts of things that they're going to keep bringing up. And mm-hmm. yeah, Obviously, there's going to be investigation. We're going to be talking about the next episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm assuming some degree of uh, court dealings, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. So I'm, I'm. You just you just laid us up, and well, I guess you just laid yourself up a little bit to uh, alley oop a little self bit. Self alley oop. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I say this jokingly because we're having fun together, but. Part two is a real bummer. Oh, good. It really sucks. 
Like it's really sad, Hmm. but I also will not make you wait very long. We'll have the part two of the Israel key story out tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this thing up. Thanks for listening to part one of this week's unusual unsettling and or unsavory story today. I'm not even going to rate it because we don't even have the whole story yet. Right. Uh, But Thanks again for listening. Also, make sure that you are subscribed to your favorite listening platform um, and that you leave a glowing five-star review on whatever that platform is. Helps other people find this podcast. Also, make sure that you follow us on social media, on Instagram and TikTok at This One Is A Doozy and on Facebook, This One's A Doozy Podcast. You can also connect with us via email this one is a doozy at gmail.com and over on Patreon. Babe, can you tell them a little bit about Patreon? Yes. On Patreon, you can, for $5 a month, help us keep the mics on and support what we're doing. If you're interested in that, you can click the link in our Instagram bio or in our Facebook about section, or you can go on the app or website for Patreon and search this one's a doozy podcast. And what do they get for being part of the Patreon? First, they get to be part of supporting the show, (laughs) which we super appreciate. But you also will get access to polls. And those polls are regarding things like episode topics. And we also, once a month, will be giving to a different cause that we believe in. And Patreon subscribers get to vote on that as well. That's awesome. Well, thank you again for listening. We will see you tomorrow for the rest of this doozy. Bye. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success.